a big question here. Any uh, superhero movie fans? Anyone? Whoa, show of hands even. Okay, great. Uh, superhero movies are just when you thought they couldn't get any bigger or that people were getting tired of them. They are huge. Again, they are breaking box office records this summer, movie after movie after movie. And millions of people are turning out to watch these films. And I'm just curious, since there's so many superhero movie fans here, what is your favorite superhero movie of all time? Just tell me. Superman. Superman. What else? Black Panther. Black Panther. All right. Recent. No, no, it doesn't have to be recent, but that one is. Any other favorite superhero movies? Wonder Woman. What else? The Incredible Hulk. Any other favorite? So, someone has a favorite. They're just embarrassed to say it. What? What? <laughs> I'm not going to say that one in the mic, but I do know that movie. Anything else? Batman. Oh, it took a long time to get to Batman. I'm surprised. Deadpool was good, too, I heard some say. All right. See, once you get now, see, I was begging for it. Now I'm going to want to move on, and people are going to keep shouting them out. Uh, so, of course... Uh, because this is so important, I did some research on this topic this week and found a list on Rotten Tomatoes uh, that uh, listed the best-reviewed superhero movies of all time. So I want to see if your favorite made it. So number five, all-time best-reviewed uh, superhero movie was The Dark Knight. Any fans here? Yes. Yeah, that was going. There he is. Yeah, he's looking pretty mean there. Number four, this is a recent film that no one mentioned, Thor Ragnarok. Is that how you say it? Someone tell me if I'm saying that right. All right, I got it right. Number three, a serious sad, not to be a spoiler, but that was minor spoiler, sad movie, Logan, number three. Yeah, it was sad. People are yeah, lamenting. And number two, Wonder Woman. And number one, drum roll, please. Black Panther, yeah. So I think that shows something, too, that these superhero movies actually might be getting better because of the top five, um, The Dark Knight is the oldest, and it's not that old. Um, so there you have it. Those are your top five ranked. Sorry, Spider-Man didn't make it. I'm sorry, Incredible Hulk didn't make it. Um, but I love uh, those, those are some good movies. So I love superhero movies. I really do. But I also have to admit that I don't completely relate to all of the superhero characters. I think part of it is probably because uh, I nor any of my friends have any mutant powers. I don't yet have any billionaire friends, and I don't know anyone who's like drunk anything close to something like vibranium. Um, and so at this point, most of my life, I feel much less super empowered and much more uh, overwhelmed. And if anything, maybe more weak than strong. But I definitely see the need in the world for some superhero type activity. And I feel like the people that I know, and I'm assuming some things here, but I'm assuming you're much more in the park with me because, you know, mutant powers, as far as we know, unless there's a big government conspiracy, don't actually exist. So, in this series, we're going to examine how if you feel like me, often overwhelmed, a little bit weak, 
that you're actually in good company. Almost every hero in the Bible is a person that you would not expect. They're poor, forgotten, discounted, the wrong ethnicity, the wrong sex, or they're a famous sinner. But God chooses them and empowers them to be the ones that make the difference. So today, we're going to start by looking at a superhero, a superwoman, uh, who can illustrate for us the idea that believing that God is good can help us overcome fear, rise above our culture, lead us through oppressive situations, and help us look outside of ourselves. And to do this, we're going to look at an example of an unlikely hero from uh, the Christian and Hebrew scriptures, a wonder woman of the Bible that you may have forgotten. Her name is Hagar. All right? You interested? Yeah. All right. So let me read this passage for you. It's a little long. And it skips over a couple parts of the Bible so that we can get the whole story. Now, there are a few characters here that you may be familiar with, may not be. One is a woman named Sarai, who is also later called Sarah. So when I'm talking and reading, and I might sometimes call her Sarai, I might sometimes call her Sarah. And the other is Abram, her husband, who is uh, called Abram, but then later gets the name Abraham. You've probably heard of Abraham. So sometimes I might call him Abram or Abraham, same person. All right? Does that make sense? So... Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. Quote, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Ber Laha Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Now, there's a little break in the story here, and in between where we are right now and where we're going, Sarai gets pregnant, and she has a son. And then speaking of that child, uh, the story continues and says, The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac, that's Sarai, that's her son Isaac. On the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham, was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance of my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. 
Listen to whatever Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of a slave into a nation also because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. And when the water of the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. And God, hearing the boy crying, and the angel of God, God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she filled, so she went and filled the skin with water, gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up, and he lived in the desert and became an archer. Now, as we read this story, your first reaction may not be, wow, God is good. This let's be honest, is a shocking and sometimes quite horrible story, isn't it? And over the years, actually, translators have tried to soften it up a little bit. So, for example, Hagar, in many translations, is referred to as a servant or a maid. The truth is, however, that she's a slave and considered the property of Abram and Sarai. She doesn't have a choice as to whether or not to have sex with Abram. And when Sarai becomes upset with Hagar, as we see in verse 6, it says that she mistreated her, which probably means that she beat her. And Abram seems to have no problem with that because she was her slave. Then later, Abram and Sarah, heroes of the faith, drive Hagar and her teenage son out into the wilderness with the equivalent of bread and water. Let's face it, and let's be honest, this is a disturbing story, and it really shouldn't be read any other way. And so you might be thinking, right off the bat, (laughs) Brad, why did you pick this passage? (laughs) No, that's not actually in my notes. You might be thinking, what do I make of this? You know, we see women being demeaned. Slavery seems to be a part of the story, and no one seems to complain about it or have any problem with it. Everything, everyone seems to be fine with all of the action that takes place here. And if this is what's happening here, then why in the world would I want to have anything to do with this or the God of this story? Now, if that's what you're thinking, first I want to say, why wouldn't you be thinking that? It's a horrible story in so many ways. But let me suggest that perhaps uh, you may be, in our first reaction, we may be reading the Bible with some preconceived notions that are incorrect. Let me explain. A lot of us, when we read the Bible or hear its stories, we assume that we're encountering a book of virtues and morals to be lived out. So we expect the narrative or the story portions of the scriptures to be stories of moral examples. Uh, Tim Keller 
talks this way as he says this as an alternative. He says, the Bible is not a book of virtues. It's a book of gospel. In other words, the Bible is not a series of stories about moral examples. It's a record of God's intervening grace to people who don't deserve it, who don't seek it, who resist it, and oftentimes don't appreciate it. The best human beings in these stories are often moral and spiritual failures who can't rise above their own culture or their own fears. Yet God continues to come to them, never giving up, but patiently investing in them. How do you hear these stories? Another way to ask this question is how do you view the circumstances of your own life? To just know the details of a story can be very misleading. Some awful things happen. To just look at the details of our lives can sometimes lead to the same conclusions. There's a lot of brokenness in the world, a lot of brokenness in each of us. Does that mean then that God is not good? Does that mean that he's okay with the evil things that happen or happen to us? I think what we'll see as we look more closely into this story is that while the people in this passage are failures, God is good in his grace. And that is, a, and that is actually, and that it is actually faith in his goodness that leads people out of the traps of fear, the traps of culture, the traps of oppression that fill this passage and sometimes fill our lives. Are you tracking with me? So what I'm saying is, yes, this is a horrible story. These people do horrible things. But the reason they do horrible things is actually that they don't believe in the goodness of God. And if they did, that could save them from the patterns and the decisions that they're making that are so horrible. Does that make sense? So let's look more closely at that. So this is a challenging passage. But I hope that this will then be a super interesting Sunday sermon. All right? So four ways that believing in the goodness of God makes, it, makes all the difference. And let's start with Abram. He's a very interesting person. Uh, he's remembered as a person of faith, right? But the biblical record shows that he's actually a very flawed person. In fact, sometimes he shows a striking lack of faith. So in this story, it says, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, took, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. So what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting here is that uh, this little blip of the story reflects the same phraseology or the same, or tells the story the same way as uh, the first story in the Bible uh, where Adam took the, first, took the fruit from Eve and ate it in the Garden of Eden. If you don't know that story, uh, that event is referred to as the fall of humanity. Now, the parallel here, I think, is not meant to communicate that men should not listen to women or that women are untrustworthy. That's not what I'm suggesting. I think what's happening here is it's drawing back to what the main sin of eating the fruit was in the Garden uh, of Eden. And that sin was doubting the goodness of God. So Satan is the tempter in that story, if you don't know it. And he comes to humanity, 
And he says, basically, look, God is trying to hold you down. He doesn't want you to eat this fruit because if you eat this fruit, you're going to know as much as him. You're going to be on par with him. He's trying to keep you subjugated to him. He doesn't want the best for you. He just wants to keep you in your place. In essence, he's not good. So when Abram goes along with Sarai in this plan to impregnate Hagar, the same thing is happening. He's doubting God's goodness. The backstory here is that God has promised to him that he is going to have a son with Sarah and that that son is going to be turned into a mighty nation that will influence the rest of the world for the good of all of humanity. But now Abram is 85. And more than that, Sarai is in her 70s. And so it certainly looks like God isn't going to come through. And Abram and his wife are thinking, I better make this happen by any means necessary. Basically, Abram is afraid that God won't come through, and and so he makes these decisions. And this is a pattern in Abram's life. So twice in the story, before we get to here, Abram is so afraid of other powerful men in the world that he refuses to admit that Sarah's his wife. Apparently, Sarah was, was a very beautiful woman. And so when other kings come across her path, he pretends that she's his sister so that the kings won't kill him and take her as their wife. And so twice, basically, Sarah is taken into the home of another man because Abram is so afraid for his own life. Abraham, the hero of faith. So he trusts God. Abraham, he does. He leaves his home at the very beginning of this whole story of his life to follow God into a strange land with no idea where he's going. But he's unable to trust God when something is immediate. So these big overarching things, he takes action. But when it gets really immediate and it's an everyday situation, like faces him in this passage and faces him in the past, he fails to realize that believing in the goodness of God is an antidote to fear. And what Abram needs to learn is that God is good every day. The idea that God is good is not meant to be just an idea or a doctrine that helps us understand the world in some philosophical sort of way. It's meant to be a daily understanding that keeps us from making bad and sometimes horrible decisions because we're afraid. But that's not all. It also, believing the goodness of God, also raises people above culture. And this, I think, is what Sarah needs in this story as much as anything else. You notice that our first verse today points out that Sarai had borne Abram no children. In fact, Sarah had never borne any children. And when she's first introduced in the, in the book of Genesis, she's introduced using a word that's very much fallen out of favor today. She's introduced as barren. Now, the reasons the term barren isn't used much today is that that word has certain connotations. So barren is not just a description of a situation, not having a child, but it actually indicates something about someone's identity. And the culture that we live in today affords women the opportunity to define themselves in many, many ways. 
Women can be mothers, professionals, artists, scientists, heads of state, anything. The culture at the time this story was written, however, afforded women many fewer options for meaning in life. It was a society in which the family, before the individual, had the most importance, and where marriage was a community decision, and where women primarily contributed and had status based on their ability to have children. So to be barren meant that a woman was a failure. So Sarai, when faced with the label of failure that her society and culture had placed on her as barren, made horrible choices. She forced her slave to become Abram's wife or concubine. Something, by the way, that was completely acceptable to do in the culture of that day. But we would look at it today and think, that's horrible. But Sarai can't rise above what her culture tells her she needs to be and the means that are acceptable in her culture to get there. Now, it doesn't have to be like that. God has promised her a son. But notice what she says about God. She said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. In other words, God is not good. He is keeping me from having children. Or more specifically, the Lord is not good to me. And I think what Sarai needs to learn is God is good, not just in some general way to humanity as a whole, but good to me. And this is the belief, the belief that God is not just good to other people, but good to me that can keep us from making bad or even horrible decisions, that can keep us from letting the culture around us dictate to us how we should feel about ourselves. Now, you might think, well, true, bad, okay, I see where you're going there, but that was an archaic culture. We know better than that now. Our women, for example, can choose whom they marry and do many more things with their lives. And in some ways, that's true. I personally think that it is progress that women are free to pursue any career they want. That I'm 100% behind, obviously. But is our culture so perfect? And after all, I think every culture has their version of barrenness. So in our culture, you can marry anyone you want to marry. But you can only marry or be in a relationship with someone that you attract. How do we attract a mate? By doing the things that culture tells us are attractive. So we live in a culture where things like eating disorders are at all-time highs. Because what culture tells us is attractive is often unattainable and unhealthy for a typical person. We're not that different from Sarah when it comes to our interaction with culture. The messages are different, but they're just as damaging sometimes. And if we let them dictate how we feel about ourselves, we can make terrible decisions as well. Hagar isn't the only slave in this passage. Sarah is a slave to what culture tells her will give her meaning. And we can easily become enslaved to what our culture tells us will give us meaning. But understanding that God is good to us personally can break the pattern of the things that enslave us in our lives. 
And knowing that God cares for us and is working for our best can help us hang in there and avoid making bad decisions that only will enslave us and hurt other people. And much of this mess in Sarah's life could have been avoided if she continued to believe that God was good. It would have been very difficult, of course. Everything would have told her not to believe that. But if she could believe that God was good to her personally and trusted him instead of taking matters into her own hands in this horrible fashion. That's not all. Believing in God's goodness can lead us through oppressive situations. Now, many of you were probably surprised that when Hagar runs away, that God tells her to go back to the oppressive situation that she was running from. Is this the Bible, for example, condoning the practice of slavery? I don't think it is. God, for example, gets upset with the Israelites for longing to go back to slavery after God brings them out of slavery in Egypt. This isn't an instance that should be turned into a rule. This, rather, is God's instruction because he knows what ultimately will be the best for Hagar. And let me get there. Remember that when Hagar runs away, she's technically a fugitive slave. That means she has little to no rights or standing in that society. But when she is later sent away, she leaves as a free woman. Isn't it interesting that the only person in this passage who experiences the immediate goodness of God is the only person who believes God is good when she has every reason to be afraid and assume that God has forgotten her. And that's why she's the hero of this story. Then the angel told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Go back and then a promise, I will be good to you. And how scary it must have been after what she'd been through. How hard it would have been to believe that God was good. But it says she, it says she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And that is why the well is called Ber Lahai Roy. She names her son Ishmael, which means God hears. And she declares, you're the one who sees me. She believes that God is good. And at the end of the day of our story, she's a free woman who has seen God and the mother of a nation. And I think what Hagar learns here is that God is good over the long haul. Now, I do think that we could get in trouble if we start making rules <laughs> about her experience and apply them in all sorts of crazy situations. But I think this is true. God is good over the long haul. And finally, believing that God is good can help us look outside ourselves. Here's what I mean. So we have this strange visitor uh, that comes to Hagar. Not just any angel, uh, referred to as the angel of the Lord. In other passages of scripture with angels, the angels are very clear that they are not God, yet here the angel is referred to by Hagar as the Lord. And she says this, she gave this, and it says this, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. So Hagar says that she's seen God. Now some say 
that occurrences like these are what they call Christophanies, which is a big word to say Jesus showing up as the angel of the Lord, God in human form in the Hebrew scriptures. Now, it's hard to know if that's actually what's going on here. But they are meant to represent an appearance of God in human form for a moment, and they give us a peek into what's truly important to God. So when God appears, he appears to a slave woman, the woman who is not the one through whom Abram's descendants will bring renewal to the whole world. God appears to the other, if you will. And God makes a special point to be good to her and her children. And this is a pattern that is repeated when God comes to earth in Jesus. He went to those who were far away, to those who were failures, to those with weaknesses, to offer grace. And I think this is what Jesus shows us. God is good to everyone. So this morning, where are you afraid? Where is it the most difficult for you to trust God? Where can you believe that God may be good to other people, but not you? What is the pattern of dysfunction that you feel? And how could believing that God is good lead you into different decisions? So if you want to, no one's going to be looking over your shoulder, I promise. You can take a moment and even write down what your greatest fear is or just picture it in your mind. Or write down a destructive pattern that you see in your life. What could you do, what decision could you make that would say, as hard as it may be, I believe that God intends to be good to me in this area of my life. And what can you do differently in response to that? Let's pray. God, what a whopper of a story today. It's full of so much uh, appalling activity. And if anything, God, I, th I think one thing we can take from this, if you can work through someone like Abraham, someone like Sarah, in all their weakness and all their sin, if you didn't give up on them, you can work in us. And also, if you can enter into the worst of who they were, and the worst of their actions, to care for and bring something good, even to the people who are hurt by that, you can overcome the mistakes that we've made too. So we welcome you here, Holy Spirit. And as we worship through music and through prayer, we welcome you to meet us where we're afraid and the places where fear leads us into destructive choices. And we also welcome you to come and redeem the mistakes that we've made. God, would you be good to us where we have failed, where we have regrets, 
where we have done evil, would you come to the people who have been hurt and redeem those situations and bring something good? And we trust you. And we say you are good. It's your grace that is sufficient for us. And it's in our weakness that your power is made perfect. Amen.